0: We'll begin reading in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Put away from thee a froward mouth, and perverse lips put far from thee. Let thine eyes look right on, and let thine eyelids look straight before thee. Ponder the path of thy feet, and let all thy ways be established. Turn not to the right hand, nor to the left. Remove thy foot from evil. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Very sobering portion of Scripture, very instructive. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That is what we are told by the prophet Jeremiah in his prophecy, chapter 17, verse 9. That the heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We must never underestimate the depravity of the human heart and its corruption. We are told here in Proverbs 4.23 that we are to keep our hearts with all diligence. You may have a marginal note in your Bible that informs you that in the Hebrew it actually reads above all keeping. Keep your heart above all keeping. Keep your heart above all keeping. So above everything else we must keep our hearts. Yet we can see from the statement recorded in Jeremiah's prophecy that it is evidently not very easy or near impossible to truly know the human heart. The next verse in Jeremiah 17 verse 10 informs us that it is only the Lord who truly knows the heart of man. I, the Lord, search the heart, I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. So we see that it is only the Lord who truly knows the heart, who truly searches the heart. And yet we are commanded to keep our hearts. We must understand, therefore, that it is only through the revelation of the Word of God that we can come to a right understanding of the heart of man and be able to keep our hearts with all diligence. Because it is only through the Word of God that we understand what the heart of man is and why we must keep it with all diligence. We read here that it takes all diligence to keep it. And the book of Proverbs is extremely helpful in this way, in, in the volume of the 66 books of the Bible. It is very instructive. It's helpful because it provides such clear instruction for us concerning the practical care that we must take our hearts every day. We might say that the book of Proverbs is the, in, the written embodiment of the first and second greatest commandments. The first and greatest commandment being, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. And the second, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. What we find in these statements of the book of Proverbs really is a step-by-step in doing that. Some statements we read in Proverbs are very hard, very hard to understand, very hard to see how we would begin to do such things. And it really opens up to us all the different facets of life that those commandments touch on that maybe we don't initially think of and in regards to our love for God and how that looks in our living and our love for man and how that looks in our living of our daily lives. But these statements in Proverbs are the product of divine wisdom itself, the Lord Jesus Christ. We read at the beginning of the book of Proverbs in chapter 1, we say, it says, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. So we know that Solomon is the author of what we are reading here. We also know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness from 2 Timothy 3.16. We know that Christ is God and that God is ultimately the one author of the Scriptures. We know that Christ said, "...the greater than Solomon has come." So really what we have here in this portion of the Word of God um, is the embodiment of the, or the inscribed wisdom of God Himself... inscribed inscribed wisdom of Christ. And so, we understand that what we have here are the words of Christ that we need to dwell in us richly in all wisdom. As we read in Colossians 3.16, let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom. So, the portion we have before us in Proverbs 4.23 is very instructive concerning the Practical care that we must take to guard our hearts against the influence of our inherent corruption and our natural bent towards sin that we have since the fall of man. Therefore, I want us to consider this morning what it means to keep our hearts with all diligence. How are we to do that? Why are we to do that? To keep our hearts with all diligence. Something we must understand at the outset of our study this morning is that we are commanded in the Word of God in Philippians 2.12 to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Salvation meaning sanctification is what that has reference to in Philippians 2.12. Work out your own sanctification with fear and trembling. So great care is to be taken in the life of the believer to our sanctification, to our growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But we do this knowing that ultimately it is God which worketh in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure, as we read in the next verse in Philippians 2.13, that it is God that works in us in, our, in this process of sanctification. So, I want us to consider this morning under four heads in these verses. Keeping our heart, controlling our mouth, guarding our eyes, and planting our feet. Keeping our heart, controlling our mouth, guarding our eyes, and planting our feet. So, first we look at verse 23, "...keep thy heart with all diligence." for out of it are the issues of life. What is the heart is a question we need to ask. What is the heart of man? Well, it is the central organ of the body. It is the central organ of the body. It pumps blood throughout our entire body. It is therefore used in Scripture with reference to the inmost being of man. To man's inner being. It's used in Scripture to refer to the mental, emotional, and moral center of man. As we are considering it here, it is the source of sin. It is the source of sin. We see it says, out of it are the issues of life. We are to keep our heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. We read in Mark chapter 7, verse 20 through 23. And He, that is, Christ, said, speaking to the Pharisees, "...that which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within." and defile the man all these evil things come come from within and defile the man so the heart is really the center of man's being and out of it we have all these issues of life so how do we keep our hearts keep thy heart with all diligence how do we keep it well first of all we must be born again In order to keep our hearts with all diligence, as we are instructed in the Word of God, we must be born again. In Ezekiel 36, verse 26, we read, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. In verse 27, And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in My statutes, and ye shall keep My judgments and do them. So it is revealed to us here two things that are implied, that the heart of man is hardened towards God. Without the regenerating work of the Spirit of God, the heart of man is hardened towards God. The stony heart out of your flesh needs to be taken away. And that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is necessary before man can begin to walk in God's statutes inwardly and outwardly. So the new birth is necessary to a diligent keeping of the heart in the life of a believer. So we must be born again. And we must not trust our hearts. We must not trust our heart. We've already read in Jeremiah 17, 9... That the heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked, who can know it? Deceitful above all things. You do not need to trust your heart, for it is deceitful above all things. He doesn't just say it's deceitful. He says it's deceitful above all things. It is the most deceitful thing that we encounter in our lives. It's deceitful above all things, and it is our greatest threat to our walking with the Lord. In Proverbs twenty eight twenty six we read, He that trusteth in his own heart is a fool, but whoso walketh wisely he shall be delivered. So we must not trust our hearts if we are to keep them with all diligence. But someone may object here that the Word of God says in Psalm thirty seven four, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of of thine heart he shall give thee the desires of thine heart but jeremiah has told us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked well when we read this verse in psalm 37 4 it means what it says that god will give us the desires of our heart but that is with the understanding that this is not an unregenerate heart And this is not even the heart of a believer apart from the instruction that we receive in the Word of God. The point of the text in Psalm 37, 4, in the first half, it says, Delight thyself also in the Lord. That is the condition upon which God will then give the desires of the heart. And He gives those desires of the heart only insofar as they are conformed to the will of God. And so that is how we are to understand that verse. But ultimately, we, we are not to trust our hearts, as Proverbs 28.6 tells us. We only trust in the Word of God, and we only trust in the will of God, and we conform our hearts to that will. And then we receive the desires of our hearts. So why is it important? Why is it important We've seen what the heart is and how to keep it. But why is it important to keep the heart? Well, the text tells us because or for out of it are the issues of life. And we've read Mark 7.20 that says that all these evil things proceed from the heart of man. So the sins we commit in our mind and with our mouth, eyes, and feet all flow from our corrupt heart. Therefore, we must keep it all the more diligently to further tame all the other members of the body. Because if we take our care to diligently guard and keep our hearts, then we'll have a better grasp on our mouths and our eyes and our feet. And so we're told, keep thy heart with all diligence. So, we want to see now controlling our mouth... Controlling our mouth. Verse 24. Put away from thee a froward mouth, and perverse lips put far from thee. Put away from thee a froward mouth, and perverse lips put far from thee. Controlling our mouth. Another question. What is the mouth? What is the mouth? Seems obvious, but it is the physical organ which, often, which most often expresses the intents of the heart as stated by the Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia, most often expresses the intents of the heart. As we read in Mark chapter 7, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what is in our heart comes out through our mouth. The mouth is the means by which some of the worst sins are committed. In the lives of unbelievers and in the lives of Of even believers. Some of the worst sins are committed with the mouth, whether it's lying or gossiping, slandering, whatever the case may be, some of the worst sins are committed. And I commend to you, if you have a copy of the Westminster Larger Catechism, to read under the heading of the Ninth Commandment, which is Thou shalt not bear false witness. Under that heading, We have question 143, 144, and 145. 143 being the commandment itself, 144, the duties required of men in the ninth commandment, and the sins forbidden in question 145. And I commend that to you very highly. I have refrained from quoting it because it is very lengthy and it is very hard to read. And it is something that each one of us should read with much care and caution and prayer and much thought given to what is being said. But it gives you there a list of the duties required and the sins forbidden concerning the mouth, concerning how we govern our speech in light of that commandment and the law of God. So needless to say, the mouth is a very dangerous tool. It is an essential tool. We have to be able to communicate, but it is a very dangerous tool. So how do we control it? How do we control our mouth? Well, the number one way and the most important way is through prayer, through dependence upon our God. We read in Psalm 141:3, Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. Do not let me utter anything that is unlawful and not conformed to the law of God. In Psalm nineteen fourteen, let the word be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. See, the psalmist understands the dangers of a mouth and what can proceed from it. And so he's dependent on God. And through prayer, he asks the Lord to set a watch before his mouth and to keep him from thinking or saying anything that is unchristian, that is ungodly. So it's through prayer that we control our mouth. And it's through diligent caution, through diligent caution as to what we say, verse 24, put away from thee a froward mouth and perverse lips put far from thee. So there is a responsibility here upon each believer to put away a froward mouth, to put away perverse lips. So it's through dependence on God, but it's our own meticulous care as to what we say and how we say it. We read Proverbs thirteen three He that keepeth his mouth keepeth his life, but he that openeth wide his lips shall have destruction. Ephesians four twenty nine Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. In Colossians three eight, but now ye also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. So we see that the Word of God is clear as to the instruction of how to control our mouth. It's through dependence upon God, and it's through a meticulous care as to what we say. And the context of those verses, verses in Ephesians 4.29 and Colossians 3.8 is it's saying you do this in light of the fact that you are saved and the fact that you are in Christ. In Colossians, it's speaking of the putting off of the old man and the putting on of the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of Christ. But there's a diligent caution required here in what we say and how we communicate with our mouths. So why is it important? Why is it important to control the mouth? Well, one, it can be devastating to the work of God. There are several times in the history of the church, and we all have various stories that we know from people who have been involved in situations where the sins of the mouth caused the corruption of the work of God that was going on. That believers can have falling outs with one another simply because someone said something that was unlawful or not very thought through. And there was not a lot of care taken as to how they communicated what they were trying to say and so it is very important because it can be devastating to the work of God a church churches have split over gossip over rumors over lies being told in the midst of the congregations and It's because people are not controlling their mouths in light of the Word of God and putting away a froward mouth and perverse lips So it can be devastating to the work of God. Another reason it is important is because it is a mark of whether a person is genuinely saved. It is a mark of whether a person is genuinely saved. If you'll turn to James chapter 3, the book of James, the epistle of James chapter 3. In the epistle of James chapter 3 and verse 1. We read, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships. "...which though they be so great, and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature." And it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Very sobering passage of Scripture concerning the mouth and the tongue and how it is to be used. It's the most descriptive passage in all of Scripture informing us as to the danger of how we speak and what we say. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God, insulting the image of God in men when we curse them. But it is a mark of whether a person is genuinely saved. He's saying, Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? The answer is obviously no. Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either of fine figs? Obviously no. So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Basically, trying to communicate to the brethren that he's writing to that if there are sins of the mouth that are constant and continual and a person takes no care or concern over what they say, and yet they profess to know god then it can very well be evidence that they have a heart that is unrenewed by the spirit if they are unrepentant in their sin so that is why is it important why is why it's important but back to proverbs back to proverbs 4 we want to consider now guarding the eyes guarding our eyes Verse 25. Let thine eyes look right on, and let thine eyelids look straight before thee. Let thine eyes look right on, and thine eyelids look straight before thee. And the implication is that the fact that he even has to say this, to give this instruction, is the tendency in human nature is to look around, to not look straight on, to look around at everything that's going on. ...and to become distracted. But he says, let thine eyelids look right on... ...and let thine eyelids look straight before thee. If you would imagine driving on the road... ...you need to keep your eyes focused straight ahead. Because if you become distracted by what's going on around you... ...at some point you're going to be so distracted... ...that you're going to crash. You're going to have an accident. You're going to fall if we want to use that terminology. So that's why he says, let thine eyes look right on. Let them look straight before thee. Keep your focus straight ahead. And the life of a Christian is not meant to be, in one sense, a road trip where you are stopping along the way to pause and and go off the beaten path. But it is a life that is to be consecrated to Christ. It is to be looking straight ahead to the pattern of our Lord's life and seeking to conform ourselves through the grace of God to His image. So, what are the eyes? What are the eyes? They are the physical organ by which man sees. But more than that, they have been said to be the window of the soul. The window of the soul. In Matthew 6, and 23, we read, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. The eyes being the means by which wicked things enter in. It is not as if things just come to us. It is as a result of the things that we see and the things that we give ourselves to and the things that we look upon entering in through the eyes, into the mind, into the heart. So how do we guard them? How do we guard the eyes? Well, by refusing to behold wicked things. We refuse to behold wicked things. Psalm one. Psalm 101:3, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. So we refuse to behold wicked things. In the life of the Christian, we have to be very discerning. Not legalists. Not legalists, but very discerning as to what we watch. What we look at in the world regardless of popular opinion, everything that we see in the world is not lawful for Christians to look upon. There are things that we are not meant to be watching or looking upon or places that we are meant to be going to where we may see lewd acts of immorality. That's not legalism. It's simply understanding that the Bible commands us to conform our lives to a moral standard that God has given us, not for our, um, not for keeping us from things that are good, but for our good, keeping us from that which is evil, that which is unlawful, that which will harm us. Because God is as a loving father, and we are His children, and He knows what is best for us. And so the psalmist says, "I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes." And so very often, you'll have a movie or a TV show or something like this come out where the people, the characters in the movie are blaspheming God. But it's only that one scene or it's only that one character that says that blasphemous statement. So I'll just keep watching it, or I'll watch it anyway, because there's nothing wrong with that. And by me saying there's something wrong with that, some would deem that legalism. Or there's immoderate dress going on in a movie. There's unlawful sexuality being portrayed. And yet you have people who say it simply does not matter and will continue to watch it anyway. But how are we to judge these things? The psalmist says, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. What does he mean? What's a wicked thing? Whatever is wicked has to be defined by what we read in the Word of God. And if what we read in the Word of God condemns that which we're looking at in whatever it is, whether it's a movie or whatever else we watch... then it is unlawful to continue to set it before our eyes. And by refusing to behold wicked things, the sinful thoughts, the perverse things that are in the world that we allow to enter in through watching them, will begin to go away. It won't be overnight. But if as you put away those things, as people put those things down and refuse to pick them up or to set them before their eyes their minds will become more pure and more conformed to the holy standard of God's Word and the mind of Christ. So we refuse to behold wicked things and we make a covenant with our eyes. We make a covenant with our eyes. Job did this. Job 31.1 I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? The man Job says, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? He covenanted that he would not look lustfully after a woman. And it reminds us of the statement of our Lord when he says that when a man looks upon a woman to lust after her, he's committed adultery in his heart. These are not meaningless things. The eyes are the window to the inner man. What we allow to enter through our eyes affects us spiritually. And Job understood that. So why is it important? Why is it important to guard the eyes? Well, it's important to guard the eyes because the failure to guard the eyes led to the fall of man. The failure to guard the eyes led to the fall of man. If you'll turn to Genesis 3, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 3, we read, "...but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die." This is Eve speaking to the serpent. "...and the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die." and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Pleasant to the eyes. But God had said, Thou shalt not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet, because of the failure to guard the eyes from looking upon that which God has said, Thou shalt not eat of it, and becoming enticed to it, The fall of man occurs. Now, Eve was created perfect, upright, had no sinful nature in her, and yet she fell from failing to guard the eyes. So how much more do we as fallen people, people with a corrupt nature, need to be diligent in the guarding of our eyes from what we behold, lest we fall into great sin. And so the failure to guard the eyes led to the fall of man. The failure to guard the eyes led to the sin of David, led to the sin of David. In 1 Samuel 11, 2, we read the account of David and his sin with Bathsheba. If you'd like to turn there and just briefly... See this example of a, a gross failure to guard the eyes. Second Samuel 11, verse 2. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, and David sent messengers and took her and she came in unto him and he lay with her for she was purified from her uncleanness. And she returned unto her house and the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. Failure to guard the eyes led to the sin of David. This man who was one of the greatest men of God who ever lived that we have recorded in the Old Testament. One who wrote the majority of the Psalms. One who knew deep communion with God, the likes of which most of us may never know. ...man, despite of his closeness to God, because he failed to guard his eyes and turn away from that which he knew was unlawful to look upon, another man's wife, he fell into great, gross sin. And this happens in the lives of men and women all the time. You hear of all manner of things happening because people do not guard their eyes. What happened to David is a... Perfect illustration of what we read in James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, where it says that man is tempted of his own lust. Man is tempted of his own lust. Every temptation comes from the lust of man. He's tempted of his own lust. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And that is exactly what we see in this example with David. He lusted, the lust conceived, it brought forth sin, and the sin brings forth death. And in this case, it was the death of the child that was conceived. A very sobering, very sobering portion of the Word of God. And that sin resulting in death. So we see the importance of guarding our eyes. That it is no small thing. Now finally we want to see the planting of our feet. Seeing the keeping of our heart. The controlling of our mouth. The guarding of our eyes. And we want to see the keeping. The planting of our feet. Verse 26 and 27. Ponder the path of thy feet. And let all thy ways be established. Turn not to the right hand. Nor to the left. Remove thy foot from evil. Ponder the path of thy feet. What are the feet? They are the means by which we walk in one of two ways. We either walk in the path of the wicked or we walk in the path of the righteous. There is no middle road between the two. It's either in the path of the righteous or in the path of the wicked. So, how do we plant the feet? How do we plant the feet? We plant them by walking according to the law of God. We plant them by walking according to the law of God. This statement, not to the right hand nor to the left, turn not to the right hand nor to the left, is very interesting because we find it repeated in several other verses of Scripture, and they each have relation to the law of God. In Deuteronomy 5.32 we read, Ye shall observe to do therefore as the Lord your God hath commanded you. Ye shall not turn aside to the right hand, ...or to the left. And Deuteronomy twenty-eight fourteen, And thou shalt not go aside from any of the words which I command thee this day... ...to the right hand or to the left... ...to go after other gods to serve them. And Joshua 1, 7. Only be thou strong and very courageous... ...that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law... ...which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. Turn not to the right hand, nor to the left. Ponder the path of your feet. Where are you walking, and how are you walking? There is a set way in which the people of God are meant to walk. Let all thy ways be established, firm, and fixed. You know how you're going to walk. You don't have to wonder how you're going to walk in life you have a pattern laid out for you in the Word of God and in the law of God. So, by walking according to the law of God and by, keep, by being careful how we walk, Ephesians 5.15, see then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Seeing that how we walk, we walk circumspectly. We walk as those who are careful how we walk in our daily lives and how we walk according to the word of God by keeping the path of the righteous by keeping the path of the righteous this is a way in which we plant our feet in Proverbs 2:20 we read that thou mayest walk in the way of good men and keep the paths of the righteous keep the paths of the righteous and by refusing to walk in the path of the wicked. By refusing to walk in the path of the wicked. Proverbs 1, 10 through 15. My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. If they say, come with us, let us lay wait for blood. Let us lurk privily for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them up alive as the grave and whole as those that go down into the pit. We shall find all precious substance. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in thy lot among us. Let us all have one purse. And the instruction is, My son, walk not thou in the way with them. Refrain thy foot from their path. There is a way in which the wicked walk, and there there is a way in which the godly walk. The Apostle Paul told us, Be ye followers of me, even as I am of Christ. And so as much as men follow Christ, we follow the examples of good men. But we walk according to the law of God and we're careful how we walk and we keep the paths of the righteous and we refuse to walk in the path of the wicked as the people of God. And so why is it important to plant our feet? Why is it important to plant our feet as the people of God in the ways of godliness? Because the devil is waiting for any of us to make a wrong step. 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Waiting for any one of us in this room or in the body of Christ at large to slip, to fall, to stray from the path of righteousness that he may devour us that He may slander us, that He may ruin our testimony and hinder our service in the work of God. So in closing, the whole man is in view in this passage of Scripture. It is a passage instructing us to keep our whole man, keep the heart with all diligence. Understanding that it is God using the means of our diligence to conform us to the image of our Lord. It's not thinking that we somehow, it's all up to us. we It's up to us to, to strive and to make progress in our sanctification. It's understanding that God has commanded us to do these things because He's going to work in us by His Spirit to conform us to the image of Christ. To conform us to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, who kept His sinless heart perfectly. Who only spake the truth in love. Who perfectly guarded His eyes and perfectly planted His feet in the way of godliness. And so we do as the Apostle Paul did, as he instructs us in Philippians 2, 12-14. He says there, "...not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect." Speaking of the resurrection and the future state of glorification. He says, "...not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect or glorified. But I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul knew exactly what we're referring to here. But this is very significant in light of this study. Because the point of this passage is not to put God's people in bondage. It's not the point to make us feel as though we we can't speak or we can't think or we need to just go and hide ourselves away in a corner and not do anything because we're afraid of sinning. It's not to put us in bondage. But it's to point us to the fact that that God's desire is to conform us to the image of Christ and as the Apostle Paul understood, not counting ourselves to have apprehended, but letting those things which are behind us stay behind us. Forgetting those things which are behind and pressing forward. Not being so guilt-ridden about our previous sins and our failures that we each experience every day but letting those things die because those sins have been purged from us. They have been paid for by the blood of Christ. So we forget those things which are behind. We don't allow ourselves to live in guilt. It is not the will of God for His people to live in guilt. But it is the will of God for us to press forward toward the mark the mark that is in the person and work of Jesus Christ for the salvation of our souls and the sanctification of our whole being. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. May the Lord give us the grace to keep our hearts with all diligence and to live our lives consecrated to Him for He is worthy of everything that we could ever give and more. Let us pray. Our eternal heavenly Father, we, we approach the Lord knowing our own infirmities, knowing the corruption of our nature, knowing the failures of our flesh, And we thank Thee, dear God, that we have been forgiven. That we can rest in the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that we can press forward toward the mark that is in Him. That is in in His person. That is in His work. That we may live lives consecrated to Thee through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we do pray, Father, that Thou would help each one of us to keep our hearts with all diligence, Lord. Thou knowest the sinful thoughts, Lord. Thou knowest the sinful tendencies that each one of us have, Lord. Thou knowest the deceitfulness of our hearts. And we pray, O God, that Thou would help us in the keeping of them. That Thou would help us in the guarding of our eyes, the controlling of our mouths, and the planting of our feet in the law of God and in the ways of God. Lord, we need Thy help. We cannot do it on our own. We have no strength in and of ourselves. We need Thee to fill each one of us with Thy Spirit and conform us more and more and more unto the image of Christ. Lord, make us men and women of God. Make us those who live holy lives. Make us witnesses for Thee. Make us those who proclaim the gospel. And make us those who proclaim the gospel from a life that has been transformed by the gospel. Lord, we thank Thee for the Word of God and its instruction to us today. We do ask that Thou would keep our minds focused upon Thee as we leave this place. Help us to take what we've learned here and to apply it to our lives. And help us, Lord, to... Again, be more and more like thy dear son. Help us, we pray, Lord, to know the law of God and how we are to walk in it. Keep our hearts, Lord, and may we be pleasing through Jesus Christ unto thee. In his name we pray and ask thy blessing to be upon thy people and for the light of thy countenance to shine upon us and go with us as we leave this place. Amen.